welcome. I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the Ethical Business Building the Future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're learning more about the evolution of finance. Sean Hinton of the Open Society Foundations applies economics to the question of governance and individuals. But first, Jenna Nicholas is the CEO of Impact Experience, where she helps investors make the world a better place. The goal within impact investing is how do we unlock greater pools of capital to invest in socially responsible businesses? So it's providing capital to businesses where the goal isn't just about maximizing financial return, but also creating social and environmental impact. How long do you think this trend has been going on? I think we've all heard of Calvert and that's been around for a long time. And the trend as uh, making a shift in investing, how long has that been going on? Yeah, I think it's fascinating because so I've had the absolute pleasure and privilege to work with Wayne Silby, who's the founder of the Calvert Funds. And he really started Calvert in the late 1970s. And he has these incredible stories about going into organizations like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and many others and sort of pitching this idea of social responsible investing and people telling him to leave. And they thought he was totally crazy. And he and his peers who were building Calvert at the time um, as this being a totally absurd idea. So to see that within from the late 70s to now, the huge shift that's taken place within the impact investing industry has been really exciting to see and to, and on my part to be part of it just in the more recent um, period of time. And you know, we, we just last weekend actually celebrated the Social Venture Network, which is an organization that Wayne Selby also co-founded. It was their 30-year anniversary. And many of the people who had been involved from the beginning uh, were there. And to be able to see this now becoming a mainstream concept, uh, I think is very exciting. And I think this will be something that will go on really forever. I, I think it's less of a um, a phase, it's more of a, like, how do we actually think about within all concepts of investing, the idea of integrating impact? How much of this do you think is because of the new generations that are coming up and they're changing priorities? I think it's very much about the, the, the shift in generational priorities. I think we're seeing that both from an investment decision-making process as that relates to impact investing. I think we see it more broadly in terms of what people are looking for out of their jobs. Um, and interestingly, I think that what leads to that is employers looking at how do we integrate social responsibility into our work so we can retain talent, which is a big part of how when we engage with companies is engaging with them uh, around mechanisms for them retaining their talent because of the emphasis on social responsibility. But they're particularly millennial women, but millennials in general that are putting pressure really on their families to say, Let's not just invest in the ways that we have done historically, but really look at what are these new models of investing and um, some of the work that have been involved in around divesting from fossil fuels and investing in new economy solutions. We see it particularly there where a lot of that work um, has been led by, by young people. And I think that we also should need to be careful to, to not think of it that impact investing can solve all the world's problems. Like there still is a really important need for philanthropy in many parts of the world and around many causes, there's a need for traditional grant funding. 
Um, and you know, and similarly, it sometimes it takes it takes some time to transition portfolios to be totally aligned with values. So this is not necessarily always going to be an overnight transition. Um, but at least investing time, energy, and resources into creating that shift, and also, in particularly, um, engaging the grassroots in this in this process, which is a big part of our work, is saying this shouldn't be just about macro institutions but really also engaging grassroots communities in this work as well tell me more about that so one example of a community that we've been really actively involved in is um it's williamson west virginia so it's in southern west virginia it's one of the poorest counties in the u.s and they had been very reliant upon the coal industry has suffered from many laid off coal miners incredibly high rates of diabetes obesity drug offense rates, so lots of challenges in the community. And we've had the pleasure over the past few years of working with the, it's called the Williamson Health and Wellness Center, an incredible doctor and entrepreneur that runs the center. And we have been organizing these series of, we call them impact experiences at convenings, uh, where we engage typically about 30 people, about half from the community. And those community members are the former coal miners, their government officials, their academics, their entrepreneurs. And then we curate groups of investors, foundations, business people from outside of the community based on the particular needs and opportunities in those communities. So one of the companies that we have engaged, for example, in this process is Cisco. And for Cisco, their, um, their interest in the community where there's a lot of needs around broadband access and around workforce development, this is a core business priority for Cisco. So there's an alignment there in terms of an engagement. Another fund that we've engaged in the work that's part of the investment portfolio of, of my colleague um, is called DBL. It stands for Double Bottom Line. They're an incredible impact investing fund that's focused on generating financial return, but also having social and environmental impact. And they, uh, two of their portfolio companies, one is Solar City. And the other is Revolution Foods that provides affordable, healthy lunches in low-income schools. They've served about 70 million students across the U.S. And those companies are now looking at setting up operations in the community as a result of the work. And again, with a company like Revolution Foods, given the incredible high rates of diabetes and obesity in the community, having companies like that looking at setting up operations in the community is really powerful. On the housing and infrastructure side, they've been doing a lot of work in Houston post the hurricane there. And there it really is focused a lot on the infrastructure side of things. And we have companies like Bechtel that are involved in the work and applying again, some of their insights from as a large multinational company um, to work in co-creating solutions with very grassroots organizations there. The essence of it really is building off a foundation of trust. Because we realized that, especially in many of the communities that we're working in, like Southern West Virginia, where they've become used to an extractive model of engagement from fossil fuel companies, unless we are investing that time up front in really establishing this foundation of trust, the effectiveness of what we're able to create will be that much more limited. Now, that brings up an interesting part of the equation, and that is power. Yes. Um, obviously, the investor still has the money. The investor can pull out and go elsewhere, whereas right. the community cannot. So how do you equalize or address that power differential? Mm. I think part of it's often naming it right, I, and naming what's in the room. And we, we, the way that we structure our, um, our 
convenings is that so we typically have about 30 people everybody's in a circle together so there's no it's not one group is pitching to another group it's not a transactional way of engaging and so it's very much we're all in this together we'll break out into small groups and um, we'll start with this trust building but then we'll go into mapping opportunities and challenges so we'll break out into small groups that are thematic based and then it's very much focused at the end everybody comes up with a set of commitments and action items which we then track over time so there's this accountability in terms of this point around pulling out there's this accountability because people have publicly committed to this is what i said i'm going to do this is what i'm going to do and we stay in touch with those participants over time around the fulfillment of that it's so important around particularly as we continue to see a growth within social responsible investing whether that's microfinance or even impact investing in general because we see some of these challenges within the broader impact investing field as well is to have accountability mechanisms to really determine what is true impact and what isn't and what is um, actually creating solutions that's what communi the communities need versus perpetuating extractive models of engagement. If you could look into the future, what would governance look like? The ultimate, really productive, really responsive kind of governance? I think we would see mechanisms such that there were effective feedback loops between decisions that are made, the impact that's created, and the, the accountability that's built into systems as being the self-perpetuating mechanism, such that people could see that their, their voice matters, that, they, that we consider the rights of everybody within a community as equal. I think you know, one of the things that's come to a head in the US more recently in this it's obviously historically always been there, but it's around discrimination around against certain minorities. And of course we see this in other parts of the world um, as well. But seeing these issues come to a head, I think has really made it clear the the structures that we have within society. And again, this is both on a political level, on a organizational level, and often even on a familial level um, are not providing opportunities for uh, respect for human dignity on the part of everybody that's within the community. And so creating structures that enable us to be able to recognize the, the talents and skills and insights that everybody within a given entity is able to contribute and that we would see human flourishing that's able to be created as a, as a, as a response to that. Sean Hinton is the Director of Economic Development Programs and the CEO of the Soros Economic Development Fund at the Open Society Foundations. He has thought a lot about individuals and governance structures and how they relate to one another. The emergence of an idea like inclusive growth, which is a very appealing idea, um, and it sort of implies that from now on, as we all grow the economy, as we all grow our wealth, we'll share more equitably than we have in the past the, the upside going forward. But, you know, it's a bit of a con, really, because the maths don't work. The level of inequality that we have reached on the planet at the moment is such that to grow our way out of that sort of, of that inequality would take so long, uh, and it would be essentially impossible for us to to simply grow our way out of the problem uh, and out of the of the uh, 
injustice that, that we have uh, already achieved, given that the scale um, of the unequal distribution of wealth and of power on the planet is so extreme. We're interested in pre-distributive ownership mechanisms. So ways of owning companies in which wealth is more evenly distributed before the wealth is generated mm. rather than after. Mm. Um, and so they rely less on acts of individual philanthropy and individual kindness uh, and much more on structured systems in which justice is incorporated as a fundamental principle. The implications of those different types of corporate entity uh, and different types of ownership, of course, implies and requires different forms of governance. You can't, you know, you can't uh, have economic distribution restructured and not have economic decision-making restructured. And therefore, new forms of governance that will represent different interests in different ways and that will allow the active participation of individuals, of citizens, of those without traditional forms of economic power um, uh, to bring them into rooms in which they have been absent uh, in a meaningful way is a requirement for those new forms of, of um, economic ownership to, uh, to, to, to function. We're, we're at an early stage of our own um, you know, uh, exploration of this. Um, we find different forms of consultation, different forms of collective decision-making um, emerge in, in, you know, in a range of places, um, but few uh, at scale in the corporate world. Um, there are the emergence of different corporate structures um, uh, that place different levels of fiduciary responsibility on shareholders and on the representatives of shareholders, but they still seem to be really scratching at the surface of these much more fundamental questions about how do you develop the capacity? How do you really make this sort of meaningful uh, participation of, of people at all levels of society? But I think that there are other, you know, more fundamental and more radical models that emerge uh, around the world. And there's increasing interest in those and in their applicability um, within our economic system. Uh, collective ownership, worker-owned uh, enterprises at scale, um, and the ability of, of community-based organizations and cooperatives to play an active role uh, in the stewarding of, of resources and in the organization of business activity. Um, you know, ideas and approaches that were uh, explored, certainly if you think about the cooperative movement some years ago, but have fallen out of favor, I think are being re-examined now in, in quite useful ways. Yeah, I suppose the, the community enterprise and cooperatives are in a position to to be doing a lot of experimenting and trying ideas and trying processes to see if they yeah, work. Yeah, absolutely. In our own work, we are very conscious of engaging at all three levels. We work primarily with, uh, you know, with grant making and with financial support to institutions in the community in the form of civil society. We engage with individuals through engagement in the public discourse, through scholarships and fellowships, and a range of ways in which we engage with individuals. Uh, we engage with governments through 
our work in policy, policy advocacy, and we engage with, with private sector through private sector investment, through impact investment and other means um, by which we engage sort of directly with the private sector. So we're very conscious in our own work in the philanthropic sphere uh, of engaging with these different actors using different tools. You were working in Mongolia when it was first opening up, right? Yeah. Were mm -hmm. there things that were going on in Mongolia that occur to you as worthy of learning lessons about how to create governance structures, perhaps? Well, I don't know. I think, unfortunately, what we have are many more uh, good examples of how not to do things than we do of how <laughs> to do things. Uh, it's much easier to learn negative lessons and to identify negative uh, cases than it is the positive ones. What we saw with the emergence of you know, market-based economies in many of these countries, and I lived through in a small way in Mongolia, was of course an incredible outpouring of individual uh, effort and ingenuity of individual investment. Um, there was a massive privatization of state-owned enterprises. Uh, and in many very real ways, there were improvements in the livelihood of many, many people in society. Uh, and so it was exciting and promising in many ways as aspects of, um, uh, of social justice and economic development were seemed to be rapidly changing. But I think that what we have seen in the course of the subsequent years is that um, both economic justice and social justice uh, remain elusive notions in those post-communist societies. So they really missed an opportunity. Yes, I think, I mean, I think there was a great moment of hope. It was a great moment of change, great moment of opportunity. And I think it has been very frustrating for um, people in those areas to see um, how that failed to yield the promise um, of the sorts of solutions that, you know, that, that, that people were hoping to find. What do the arts have to teach us about governance? I think one of the most powerful things that we learn from our exposure to the arts uh, and from artistic expression is the power of the wordless to unleash in us uh, emotions and responses um, that transcend the logical and the rational. And that's a very powerful shared experience uh, for people around the world. And it's an experience that can transcend, in many ways, can transcend culture, can transcend language, can transcend uh, other sort of limitations. Though that understanding of common humanity and that understanding of the power of, uh, that, that we have to connect at a deeper level, we often see artists as the, uh, as the first to recognize and the first to be able to tap into those very sort of deep threads and feelings in society. And I think it's those motivations, those deep um, and powerful emotions that are going to be needed um, if we are to make the kind of change that's required in order to bring greater levels of economic justice. Thank 
you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.